In her article, Why Do Kids Ask Why?, Cassidy Emerson says, why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat my carrots? Why is the sky blue? Why do birds sing? Why is that man a different color than I am? And why do kids ask why? If you have a small child in your life around the age of three years old, you probably get inundated every day with questions like these. The questions start out innocently like, why do you put gas in the car? That's a simple question that a child could want to know. It would explain why you're at the gas station spending a week's paycheck on a tank of gas. And after you've answered one question, you think you've put their mind at rest. But no, the first question seemed to be a teaser. It was a test to see if you would supply the requested information or if you would just blow the child off instead with an answer like, why do kids ask why? After the first question is asked and answered, the next questions keep coming like the rapid fire of a machine gun. After answering question after question to satisfy the curiosity of a small child, you think your brain is going to explode. Or the worst could happen. They could ask a question of you, the all-knowing adult, and you won't have a feasible answer to give them. Cassidy Emerson goes on in her article to help answer the question as to why kids ask why. So as we attempt to unpack 1 Kings chapter 13, and turn there in your Bibles now if you would, as we attempt to unpack 1 Kings chapter 13 today, you may find yourselves in the shoes of children again because you will probably have many questions about today's passage. Lots of why questions will probably pop in your mind, and you may view me as the all-knowing pastor, and you may want to ask me questions about this text, and I may not have feasible answers to give you. So let's approach the text today the way an old children's learning website does in response to the many rapid-fire questions of children. Their motto was this, where why turns to wow. And that's what I want us to see in today's text. I want us to move from all the questions of why to a response of wow. And that's how we should always respond to God's word. We should leave here today saying, wow, I just got goosebumps. When you hear the good news of the gospel, it should give you Goosebumps. It should make the hair on your arms stand up. Kind of like that goosebump meme that floats around. Have you seen it? It's a picture of someone whispering something in someone's ear, and what they whisper gives the person goosebumps. Here are a few of my favorites it says, Good morning, coffee and bacon are waiting for you. Goosebumps. The next one, Texas. If you've never been to Texas, you're not going to get that. But if you've been there, you understand. Someone did that this week with me. Mike Ruiz said Texas, and I was like, here's the next one. I know the difference between there, there, and there. (laughs) That gives me goosebumps. And the last one is my favorite. Let's binge watch the Twilight Zone. (laughs) When you hear the good news of the gospel... That Jesus lived and died for you. That he came back from the dead and ascended into heaven where he was coronated as king of kings. That should give you the goosebumps. 
When you hear that Jesus lived and died for you, it should give you goosebumps no matter how many times you hear it. Ralph Davis said, I think even the church has lost the marvel of such forgiveness. We have, by and large, the vending machine view of forgiveness rather than the miracle view. We pop in our penitence token and out comes the assurance of forgiveness. We have lost the goosebumps on our souls. Having a God who passes over rebellion, Micah 7.18, should make us shudder with joy. And so I hope after being exposed to 1 Kings chapter 13, you leave here today saying, wow, I just got goosebumps. Wow, Jesus loves me. Wow, Jesus can't remember my sins. Wow, God passes over my rebellion. Wow, I could seriously mess up my life if I ignore God's word. Wow, to resist Jesus never ends well. So as we look at this passage today, we want to move from why to wow. Yes, there are lots of questions that might pop uh, into your head after reading 1 Kings 13. Questions like, why does the uber-rebellious King Jeroboam ask for healing for his frozen and shriveled up hand and God grants it? And how come the man of God couldn't receive hospitality from anyone on his journey? And why does the man of God have to go home on a different route? And why did the old prophet lie to the man of God? And why does the man of God go home with the lying prophet? And why does the word of the Lord come to the lying prophet? And why is the man of God's punishment so severe? And why in the world do the lion and the donkey just stand next to a dead body all day? This passage seems like it can be an episode of the Twilight Zone. Jeroboam's hand freezes up, one prophet lies to another prophet, a man is killed by a lion, and then the lion and the donkey just stand next to his dead body all day. This chapter has Rod Serling written all over it. But let's get beyond these questions because the text will not answer them for us. We've got to move on from the questions of why to a response of Wow. The text does give us a theme, though, the word of the Lord. The author does not answer any of our nagging questions, but he is clear about his emphasis in this chapter, and it's the word of the Lord. These phrases are used repeatedly in this chapter. The word of the Lord is used nine times. The Lord says is used two times. The Lord commanded two times. The Lord spoke two times. The mouth of the Lord two times. So as we read the chapter, be on the lookout for these phrases. And by repeating these phrases, the author of 1 Kings is saying to us, don't worry about your questions. Don't worry about getting all of your questions answered. Focus on the importance of the word of the Lord. But notice how the author grabs our attention in this story. Last week, we left off with King Jeroboam leading the nation of Israel in false worship. 
We saw last week Jeroboam suppressed the truth that he knew of God and suppression never stays suppression. It always becomes an exchange and he exchanged the truth of God that he suppressed for a lie that he came up with in his own head. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, the author wants us to see what happened after Jeroboam built two golden cows and put them in the high places in the cities of Dan and Bethel. So 1 Kings chapter 13 beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. The author uses the Hebrew word hene here, and when this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to invite us as readers into the scene, to actually become characters and watch what is happening in the scene. It's as if the author is saying, come here and get a load of this, guys. King Jeroboam is worshiping a golden cow, and God is sending a prophet to confront him. Wow, grab some popcorn, because this is going to be good. And so picture King Jeroboam ready to sacrifice on the altar, and the man of God comes from down south in Judah, and he interrupts the worship service, and he begins shouting at the altar. Now, archaeologists have uncovered the altar that Jeroboam built in the city of Dan in the north. Here's a picture of it. There's a metal frame in the middle where they want to show you where the altar used to be. And I'm sure the altar in Bethel looked just like this one in Dan. So picture the man of God coming and he begins shouting at the altar. Now look at verse 2. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And so the man of God shows up and begins speaking to the altar, and he says that Josiah will be born, and one day he will sacrifice all the false high priests who sacrifice on the altar. Now think about it, these false high priests would have been standing right there as the man of God is saying this. I love the man of God. He takes God's word and he gives the message not caring how it is received. We need this in our culture desperately today, don't we? Pastors need to speak the truth of God's word regardless of what culture says and regardless of the consequences. So you need to pray for us here and pray for pastors. But, and this is important, 
we don't have to be jerks when we speak the truth of God's word. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15 that we should speak the truth of God's word with gentleness and respect. That's the key. Gentleness and respect. We need still spines and soft hearts. Well, then the man of God says he will give them a sign that this will come true about Josiah being born. The altar would be torn down that very day and the ashes would be spilled out. Now, how do you think Jeroboam is taking this interruption of his worship service and these condemning words? Well, he's not taking them well. Jeroboam thinks, how dare this rascal from Judah come marching in here and try and condemn me? Get them, boys. And so he sicks his bodyguards on the man of God. And then as King Jeroboam tries to pull his hand back in, it freezes up and shrivels up, and he couldn't draw it back in. He's paralyzed. And then immediately the altar is torn down, and the ashes are spilled out on the ground, and it's just like an episode of The Twilight Zone. And I love it. The word of the Lord came true right then and there. And how does Jeroboam respond to the word of the Lord? Look at verse 6. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So Jeroboam recognizes that what the man of God said was true, and he begs him to pray to the Lord. Notice he says, pray to your God. He begs him to pray to the Lord for his healing, and God does it. Yahweh does it. The Lord does it. Jeroboam's hand is restored. Wow. But why? King Jeroboam is leading the nation of Israel in false worship. Why does God heal him? We can't know why. But this passage does show us that what Puritan Richard Sibbs said is true. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Or what Charles Spurgeon said, you never have to drag mercy out of Christ as money from a miser. When you go to Jesus for mercy, it's not like he's a stingy person who doesn't want to give anything away. He's not like that. Or again, to quote Richard Sibbs, the depths of our misery can never fall below the depths of mercy. Or what Ray Ortland said, for every again of our sin, there is a greater again of God's grace. The fact that Yahweh healed Jeroboam's hand was 100% pure mercy. He didn't deserve it, and neither do we. Jeroboam didn't deserve God's mercy, and neither do we. We all sin every single day. 
And Jesus is merciful to us. We don't deserve his new morning mercies. And yet when we wake up, there they are. Let this sink in. Jesus doesn't give us what we all clearly deserve. So instead of saying, why? Why in the world does the Lord heal that no good, dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking King Jeroboam? Why? Instead of saying that, say this, wow, I just got goosebumps. Wow, there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. Wow, the again of our sin is swallowed up in the great again of God's grace and mercy. You and I shouldn't be so startled that God healed Jeroboam. We should be startled that God forgives our sin. And if you're not startled by the fact that God forgives you of your sin, you don't understand his holiness and you don't understand just how messed up you are because of Adam's sin. We should be startled that God forgives our sin, that he has healed our sin sickness. You should be startled that God forgives your sins. I should be startled that God forgives my sins. Forget Jeroboam, I've got my own issues. I have my own rebellion that needs to be passed over. He forgives me. That makes me shudder with joy. He's been so good to me, y'all. I just say, wow. And so when Yahweh healed rebellious King Jeroboam, it was mercy on display, public mercy for everyone to see. Mercy, plain and simple. Jeroboam should have been stoned to death for leading them in false worship. That was the punishment that fit the crime. But Yahweh has mercy on him. The healing of the deformed hand the shriveled up frozen hand, the tearing down of the altar, it's all a mercy. Why? Why is it mercy? Because the Lord is intervening and pointing out Jeroboam's sin and it could be an opportunity for King Jeroboam to repent. This mercy should have startled him and changed him and transformed him. And mercy should startle us. And change us. Or as Paul would say, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance is simply just renewing our wedding vows with Jesus, our first love. Ralph Davis said, Yahweh hasn't changed and he does not hesitate to come barging after you right into the middle of your idolatries He'll throw roadblocks in your path and sometimes send reasonably obnoxious servants to you as well. But it's good news that he'll do most anything to pry you loose from your golden calves. His mercy makes waves before his judgment arrives. Listen to me this morning. A reasonably obnoxious servant sent by Jesus to you this morning. Turn from your darling sins. They will not satisfy. 
His mercy is making waves today in your life before he comes in judgment or if you're a believer, before he comes in discipline. That's what Yahweh is doing here for Jeroboam. So how does Jeroboam respond to Yahweh's kindness? How does he respond to this merciful intrusion of God's word? Verse 7 says that Jeroboam invited the man of God back to his house for some refreshments and a reward. So it seems like Jeroboam is responding appropriately to the word of God. But I'm skeptical. And I have my doubts. Why? Because I know how this story ends. Because I peeked and I read the last chapter of the book. And I read the last few verses of the chapter. Jeroboam isn't phased by mercy. So let's peek ahead and and read the end of the chapter. Look at verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Jeroboam failed to respond accurately to God's merciful word. Instead of being startled, instead of saying, wow, Jeroboam says, whatever, whatevs, whatever and ever, amen. And so the man of God turned down this offer by King Jeroboam to go to his house, and he turned back to go home on a different route. The man of God had a clear word from the Lord that he was not to eat or drink with anyone and that he had to return on a different road than the way he made it there. But across town, something else was happening. So let's take an Uber to the other side of Bethel and let's see what's happening there. Look at verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then the old prophet said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And the man of God said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, the old man, the prophet, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So the man of God went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. So the old prophet's sons were at Jeroboam's church that morning. And they go home and tell their dad what happened. And he sends for the man of God and tells him, That the Lord says, it's okay if you come back to my house and eat with me. And so the man of God is deceived and he uh, disobeys the clear word that he had from the Lord. And he'll soon find out that the old prophet was lying to him. Look at verse 20. (laughs) And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, 
Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. So as they're sitting there at the dinner table eating and drinking, the real word of the Lord now comes to the old lying prophet and he passes these words on to the man of God. He says, you disobeyed the clear word of God, and now you'll die. And then the man of God leaves, and a lion attacks him and kills him. And then like a scene out of some 60s sci-fi show, his body is left in the middle of the road, and a donkey and a lion just stand there next to him. I mean, picture it. There's a dead man in the road, and a lion standing next to him, and a donkey standing next to him. And so by now, you should be accumulating a bunch of why questions in your head. But again, we may not be able to answer them. I don't know why the old lying prophet was able to speak a true word from the Lord to the man of God. And I don't know why the man of God believed the lie that the old retired prophet said. And I don't know why the man of God was killed by a lion for disobeying God's word while the wicked and rebellious King Jeroboam was healed. Why was that guy killed by a lion and Jeroboam's hand is healed? I have lots of questions, lots of rapid fire why, why, why questions, and you probably do too. But we can't get bogged down with the why questions. It's okay to ask why questions, and we should ask why questions when we read the Bible. Ask questions, study, dig deep into God's word. Ask questions when you read the Bible. But we have to be okay with not getting them all answered. And more importantly, we must return again to the theme of the chapter, which is very obvious. It's the word of the Lord. The man of God was killed by the lion He clearly had and knew the word of the Lord, and yet he disobeyed. It didn't give him goosebumps. Yahweh had given the man of God a very clear word. Here's your instructions. Go to Bethel, confront Jeroboam, come back a different way than you went, and don't have lunch with anybody. 
It was all very clear and very simple. And yet, he disobeyed, and it cost him dearly. He died. And now his body is in the middle of the street, and there's a lion and a donkey standing next to his lifeless body. So obviously, there's something crazy going on here in Bethel. I expect someone smoking a cigarette, namely Rod Serling, to step out from behind the lion and say, you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead, your next stop, the twilight zone. That's what it feels like here. It feels like the twilight zone. What in the world is going on? There's a dead man lying in the road. He's surrounded by a donkey and a lion. Why doesn't the donkey walk away slowly from the lion so he doesn't become the lion's next victim? And why doesn't the lion finish off the man and then eat the donkey for lunch? Lots of whys. Lots of questions abound. But I do want to try and answer one question here. Clearly there is something twilight zone-ish going on. The dead body is in the road, surrounded by a lion and a donkey. Remember, there are no cell phones. There's no email, no texting. Travel would have taken some time. And so for quite a while that day, the lion and the donkey are just standing there next to the body all day long. People are coming to see it. This is before social media. So it takes time for word to spread and people are coming out and observing this very weird scene. I mean, what an odd sight. And so what does this signify? What is the purpose of this sci-fi scene in Bethel? I think it's a sign that Yahweh must be at work. It was a sign that the Lord was up to something. This weird sci-fi moment was meant to get everyone's attention as the story about the man of God spread. It's meant to remind God's people to make sure that they heed God's word, to make sure they get goosebumps when they hear his word. I mean, if the lion ate the man and then ate the donkey, then that would be normal. That's what we expect. And people would refer to this road as dangerous, don't travel down that road. It would have just been normal. That's nature. That's just mutual of Omaha's wildlife Wild Kingdom stuff, right? If you remember that show. That's what lions do. They eat stupid people and they eat donkeys that get too close or try to run away. But something weird is going on here. The sci-fi scene is letting us know that the Lord is up to something. The lion and the donkey are just standing there for hours. And so people would have realized that this was a sign. And I think that's how the old prophet takes it. This odd couple, the lion And the donkey surrounding the man of God was a message, another sign to the nation that God's word would come to pass. And it was a reminder to the original audience of 1 Kings who were in exile because they disobeyed God's very clear word. It was a reminder to them that God's promise and God's word to them in the future would prove true as well. And where did all this start? It started with the old prophet's lie at the end of verse 18. It says, but he lied to him. In Hebrew, it's just two words, kikesh lo. Just two words changed it all. 
two words written by the author about the old prophet, and it changed everything. Instead of getting goosebumps, instead of being moved by the very clear word of God, the man of God and the old prophet both turn away. One tells a lie and one believes a lie. But there is a true word here, God's word, and it should grip us. It should grip our hearts. The man of God had the word of the Lord, but he wasn't gripped by it, and it didn't move him. It didn't give him goosebumps, and it cost him everything. This 60s sci-fi chapter should make you stop and say, wow, I just got goosebumps. Wow, I could seriously mess up my life if I ignore and neglect God's word just like the man of God. Wow. 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 Sobering. So let this chapter serve as a reminder to you that you desperately need God's word. And when you read God's word, remember He's opening up his heart to you. As you pick up the Bible and read, God is talking to you. He's actually opening his heart up to you. You're hearing good news straight from Jesus. So if you ever find yourself not wanting to read God's word, and let's be honest here, who hasn't been there? Who hasn't had a day where they're like, I know I should read God's word, but I just don't want to. We've all been there. When you have those days, remind yourself, when you open up God's word, he's actually opening up his heart to you, telling you what he is like. In his word, your heavenly father is giving you, since you're his child, his adopted child, he's giving you counsel, he's giving you guidance, he's urging you on. He's not just passing on information to you, he's not just passing on principles. He wants to change your heart he wants to transform you. He's not a drill sergeant coming to bark orders at you. I think that's sometimes how we, we take God's word. He's just yelling at me. No, he's a father who wants to pass on his wisdom to his child. He wants to say, you're my child. I don't want you to ruin your life. Take my wisdom. Learn from me and live. Let me bless you. Yes, sometimes God will disagree with you. That's offensive, isn't it? We don't want a God who disagrees with us, do we? We want a God who affirms everything about our lifestyles and everything that we think we want him to be. If Jesus affirms everything that you want to believe about him, it's probably not the Jesus of the Bible that you're picking and choosing. Yes, sometimes God will disagree with you and he will correct you because he loves you. He'll send a reasonably obnoxious servant of his to you to tell you to stop. Stop what you're doing. Don't go down that path. He'll discipline you because he loves you. Listen, God doesn't work with perfect people. There are no perfect people. God works with responsive people. People who respond to his word. Will you respond to his word today? Take him at his word. Where do you need to take God at his word today? What's happening in your life and you know there's passages that you've been pushing away or promises that you're like, I'm just too good to be true. I can't believe it. Where do you 
Individually, where do you need to take God at his word? You can start over again today, right now. That's the good thing about Jesus. You can just start over again whenever. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to wait till next Sunday. You can start over with Jesus anytime. Anytime you're just willing to open the empty hands of faith and say, Here I am, bringing my sin, the only thing I ever bring to this relationship. And you still want me to show up, Jesus? He's bring it, back it up by the truckloads. Here I am, same old me, Jesus, bringing the same old sins, the same old stuff I just keep repenting of, and it keeps cropping up in my life. And he says, I'm ready. Let's, let's start over again. He doesn't get sick of it. You would think he would. You would think he would finally be like, all right, that's it, man. Really? How many trucks are you going to back up here? He doesn't. Same old you, same old sins. Same old Jesus. He's ready today. He's ready right now. Are you ready? You can come. Let him melt your heart today. Take him at his word. And when we open up God's word, we'll find that Jesus is after nothing less than our wants and our loves and our longings and our hearts. And so the question now is will. The question is not why. The question now is will. Will we humble ourselves and listen? Will we get low before the Lord? Will we take God up on this two-way relationship of love? Will we respond to his love with love? Will we let him feed our souls with the gospel of his son? Will we enjoy this dynamic two-way relationship with the God who made us and who knows us and knows everything about us? Will we allow God to talk to us about our sin Talk to us about our guilt. Talk to us about our weakness. Talk to us about our blindness. Will we allow the Holy Spirit to show us from God's word that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need? Freedom comes when we do that. Isn't that amazing? The thing we don't want to do is humble ourselves, and that's when freedom comes. You want to be set free? We were just singing it. Set me free. You know how you get free? Humble yourself. Get low before the Lord and just say, same old me, same old sins. Freedom comes when we do this. We show that we are friends with God when we let his word do its work in our lives, when we let God's law expose us and expose our sins, and when we let the gospel come and relieve us and free us from condemnation, and when we let God's word remind us that God loves us unconditionally with no strings attached. Wow! God loves you unconditionally, no strings attached, none. He just loves you. You love me? I I just love you. You don't have to do anything. I just love you. No strings attached. Wow. Be reminded this morning that Jesus is the word. We're talking about the word of God, the word of the Lord. We're talking about Jesus. Christian, the one your soul loves. John said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not full of 
anger at you, adopted child of God, not full of vitriol, not full of frustration. Why can't you get your act together? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. And so to resist the word is to resist Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. To resist the word is to resist Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Who wants to do that? Who wants to resist Jesus? He's been so good to us. Who wants to resist Jesus? Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, who can resist the matchless charms of Jesus Christ? The fairest of 10,000 fairs, the loveliest of 10,000 loves, Who can refuse to adore the prince of perfection, the mirror of beauty, the majestic son of God? Think about him this morning. Don't refuse him. Who can resist him? Renew your soul goosebumps this morning. Repent and renew your wedding vows with Jesus. Maybe you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. Take him at his word. He says, come unto me. I'll forgive all your sins and make you new. But you've got to repent and come to Jesus. Will you do that today if you're not a Christian? For those of us who are Christians, repent and renew your wedding vows with your love, with your Savior. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. In the gospel, he passes over your rebellion. That should make you shudder with joy. And maybe even sing with joy, which is what we're going to do right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed at your great love for us. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you put up with me. I keep bringing the same old me. And you keep bringing the same old you. And that makes me shudder with joy. Lord, make us a church that doesn't resist your word. A church that loves your word. Reads it, studies it, meditates on it, memorizes it, teaches it. Oh, God, help us and change us. And then may we take this good news to our city, tell people about the God who loves them. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for being so good to us. Amen.